Welcome to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspective on the world of books, culture, and the arts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. In this episode, we hear from authors Patricia Cornwell and David Nichols, both with new novels available now and both with fascinating insight into character development. Patricia Cornwell, author of Flesh and Blood, the 22nd book to feature the detective Kay Scarpetta, talks with her editor, David Heifel, about how she used research into new high-tech weapons to try to trick Scarpetta, an attempt that she says always, ultimately, fails. And David Nichols tells us about his desire to write a male protagonist for his new book, Us, that is in direct contrast to the leading character in his previous very popular novel, One Day. Let's listen first to David Heifel speaking with Patricia Cornwell, recognized as one of the world's top best-selling crime authors and whose novels have won numerous prestigious awards as she discusses Flesh and Blood, where Detective Scarpetta finds herself in the unsettling pursuit of a serial sniper who leaves no incriminating evidence except for fragments of copper. The victims appear to have had nothing in common, and there is no pattern to indicate where the killer will strike next. With her bravura storytelling and state-of-the-art forensic details that are her hallmarks, Patricia Cornwell again raises the bar with this highly entertaining new tale. Here now are David and Patricia. The research that you do is so unlike what a lot of people do. Um, You really dive in. It's so interesting. You talk about ballistics in this book, which is so interesting in Flesh and Blood, but also, obviously, the the medical examiner, typical lab stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of the new research you did this time or what some of the research you did that you really enjoyed? Well, the two really big things that I did for Flesh and Blood is, one, I got recertified as a scuba diver because I really had not been doing scuba diving since I wrote Cause of Death in the late 90s or, like, 1996. And and I had learned to, you know, scuba diving specifically for that book because Scarpetta recovers and she works an underwater death scene, basically, in that book of very long ago. And I decided, you know, I want to get her back into that. I'm going to do something with it in this new book. So after 20-something years, I had to go back to dive school. Um, and I forgot, I realized I'd forgotten absolutely everything. And here I am getting thrown off a boat in the middle of the ocean and... Um, getting right back into how that feels. But what always happens is if I do something for real, I get an idea. So I was diving a wreck down in Florida um, that was almost 100 feet down, and then I knew that's where I was going to set a really important scene in my next book. But until I saw it with my own eyes and was down there and knew what it felt like and thought, oh, my God, what if this came around the corner of this hulking piece of rust on the bottom of the ocean? you know, that would be quite dramatic. So I I did that. Then the other thing is, of course, the weapon. I always do weapons research. That's one of the earliest things I do in any book is what is killing these people. And how do I try to outfox that crafty old girl? I'm going to get something here that she's not going to recognize. Damn it, I'm going to trick her. Right, Never right. works, of course. She always figures it out. So I went out uh, to Texas a couple times, out on rifle ranges where you could shoot for almost a mile, Uh, not worry about endangering anybody, picking the latest, most outrageously technically advanced firearms, one in particular that you'll see in this book that I actually shot several times, and I put Scarpetta through the paces of she has to test fire it eventually so she understands its capabilities. Because if she doesn't do that, 
she cannot figure out how the killer has done what's been done in this book because the trajectories or the flight paths of the bullets, nothing is making sense. And it's an unusual rifle, right? It's not, is it even on the market now? Or? It is on the market very sparingly. I mean, when people see, when they Google about this type of firearm, I don't use a real name, um, they will find that there is this technology out there mm-hmm. and it needs to be handled very, very wisely and carefully because it's extremely dangerous if it gets in the wrong hands because it gives capabilities to shooters that generally are not existent except in the very best of military snipers. Right. So so this is what I do. And then literally with this range in Texas, when we were when we would fire something, because we had the whole range to ourselves, we would then be able to go down range and collect the spent ammo. Uh, and, and analyze the target, look at the ballistic gelatin we used or the blood packs we put on it and see what kind of damage is done so that I can begin to understand what Scarpetta is going to see on a body mm-hmm. and what's going to be recovered and what she's going to submit to her labs and what we're going to see microscopically. And generally, I always try to give her something that's not, you know, it's not possible to figure it out. But, of course, there's always just that one little thing that she goes, um, what's this? And the answer to that is always what takes you home, country road, because she's going to figure it out. Right. I love it. What a good job. So here's a question for you about Pete Marino. People know him as sort of a bull in a china shop. He loves to kind of make trouble in a way. He's such a fascinating guy, and we love him for it. But he's got a different kind of place in the story this time. What made you decide to put him back on the police force? Well, you know, Marino ran into the, the major difficulty many years ago when Scarpetta left Richmond and then she started moving around to different locales. Marino had to go with her, but he couldn't just become a cop everywhere she moved. Scarpetta was a bit of a literary nomad for a while before she finally settled in Cambridge. So to, to solve that problem uh, over a decade ago, I had Marino go to work for her as basically her her head forensic investigator. And I think Marino, without really sending me emails or writing job description complaints to me, was not happy with this arrangement. He did not like not having a badge, um, being able to arrest people. He did not like working for Scarpetta. And after years of deteriorating behavior and drinking too much and overdoing it with the Christmas ornaments on his property, I think I finally got the message that this was an unhappy man. So I said, well, you know what? If you told me years ago... I could have gotten written a letter to the police commissioner, gotten the district attorney on board, and gotten you a job, buddy boy. And uh, But you just weren't open about your feelings, which is typical of him. So I decided a book ago, before Flesh and Blood, that he was going to go back to work for the police. And this is where this man is happy, because Scarpetta doesn't get to tell him what to do. In fact, he calls up and says, I need you at this homicide scene now. And she says, no, I'm on my way on vacation. Guess again, it has to be you, Doc. You're not want, You're going to have to see this one for yourself. And so now we got the right tension back in this mix. He's a big, powerful guy. He needs to have his own authority. I so agree. I think, I agree. I think that things are all well in the Scarpetta paradise. All is good again. Yeah, no. And it, it, that dynamic between the two of them felt familiar but felt really good. Even though they were fighting a couple of times in this book, I remembered the times, you know, six, eight books ago when they were doing that. And it just... It felt a little better this time. Well, it's it's an it's a balance of power. It's just like Benton Wesley needs to have his job with the FBI. Everybody needs to have their power base in order to make a good member of their big A team that they that they have because otherwise 
it just somehow the texture of it all just deteriorates in a way that's you don't really know why, but I think even the readers would sense something doesn't seem right, but I can't put my finger on it. Right. And with Marino, you, it's, I'm always having to pull a, a rabbit out of a hat about jurisdiction. Because just like in real life, he works in Cambridge. He should not be working cases outside of Cambridge, but I find ways to get around that. He really does need to be her sidekick, but he also needs to have his own power. So if he wants to throw somebody to the ground and put handcuffs on him, he can. Right, right. I have a question for you about kind of stepping back a little bit, looking at across several books and, you know, Scarpetta's career and your career, how do you sh- shake things up after a while? I mean, you know, we we talked one time about your thinking of a decision you made, which is so clever at the end of Flesh and Blood, which readers are going to love. You know, that's a big choice to make. How did you come up, without giving too much away, how did you come up with that idea or think about it or just tell me a little bit about that because I thought it was so interesting. Well, you know, believe it or not, I do keep one ear to the street about things that are that fans are saying. And when fans continue to say the same thing over and over again for more than a decade or, um, you know, that actually develops subcultures within the fan base group of, of being devotees of certain people or things they've missed in the series within reason... I think about it and I try to do something about it because I'm I like to think my work is interactive in the sense that I do care what my fans say now they've wanted for a long time for example they want Rose back they miss Rose Scarpetta's secretary well that just isn't possible you know Rose was 900 years old when she finally went on to glory and Rose is not coming back I've asked Rose she says no she's retired she's not taking up that job again so there's other things people will suggest along the way and I think about them I go, is this possible? Is it a good idea? And and I do get rather startling ideas about that from what fans say. But in addition to that, I change with the times. Um, like the types of characters that might have been interested in the 90s maybe weren't so interesting in the next decade. And now where we are in 2014, there's sometimes things go full circle and stuff that used to be the latest greatest is now of interest again and I might backpedal and go way back to doing something that I did in the early days. So what I do to keep it interesting is most of all is I give outrageous thought to everything I'm going to do in every new book because if the characters don't sort of break bad and do something new and different then we all get bored including them. So And then I got to the point where in Flesh and Blood, I wanted Scarpetta to personally do something a little bit outrageous, to do something she's really not supposed to do. It's not really her job responsibility, but she says, you know what, screw it, I'm the best one to do this, and I'm going to, and she falls right into a trap. And how it turns out, you'll have to read it to see. It's a delicious dilemma for her. It's it's fantastic. So on that point, about Scarpetta, I think of her as in, across, you know, every kind of thriller and suspense novel I've ever read and ever really loved. She is one of the most um, passionate, determined, dynamic characters out there. She wants justice, and you can feel it on every page. She's also, I mean, so she has these strong emotions. She's very intuitive. Um, and yet she has a staff with her and a, and a group with her who's also, you know, equally smart in some ways. So what do you think makes her such a great detective? What do you as her creator think about her that makes her so top-notch? It's, it's her passion, and it's that she has 
what 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 I would call this in, insatiable seeking mind. I mean, she's the sort of person if she's driving down the highway and she sees a branch that's leaning at a strange angle over the road, it will bother her for the next 15 minutes trying to figure out what made that happen that way. Was it a lightning strike? Was it a storm? Is it something weird in the, the root system or the way the water's being fed or the cracks in the pavement that made it grow that way? Nobody else cares. But she can't stand it. She's got to figure out everything. And that's really the key to what happens in every one of these books, including Flesh and Blood, is that there's just that one question that nobody else thinks matters. And she goes, but why? But why? I mean... You can't not answer that because there is a reason for it and it might change everything if we figure it out. Mm-hmm. And that's what she always does. Like what nags at her and nags at her in flesh and blood is for one thing, this angle that it looks like these bullets have been fired at, there is really no good explanation for it. And although nobody else really thinks it matters very much, I have to know why because it might tell me where and who and what for. And that's just the way her mind is. She looks at anything and she goes, now, isn't that interesting? And someone says, but it's just a scrape on a piece of metal. But look, look at where it is. It shouldn't be there. Why? And that's, she never loses that. Never. And that's what makes it good. And that's what makes it fun to write about. Yeah. No, it's it's a fantastic novel. Thank you. And now my conversation with David Nichols, author of the New York Times bestseller, One Day, which sold over 2 million copies and has been translated into 37 languages. David also wrote the screenplay for the 2010 film adaptation starring Jim Sturgis and Anne Hathaway. His current novel, Us, was long listed for the 2014 Man Booker Prize. Us follows one 54-year-old man, Douglas, as he tries to salvage his marriage to 52-year-old Connie and repair his relationship with his teenage son, Albie. David Nichols, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. There's a scene in the early part of the novel where Douglas and Connie are arguing over their son Albie's decision to study fine art photography at university. And Connie is very supportive of the effort. Yes. And Douglas is less so. And they're in the kitchen, and they're, as you describe it, they're furiously putting away the cutlery. Yes. And Douglas tells Connie, loudly enough so that Albie, who's left the scene, can overhear, that, quote, life has limitations, and the sooner he faces up to this fact, the better off he'll be. Yes. It's quite harsh, isn't it? (laughs) Now, I think what happens next is very interesting because he reflects that he says this believing that he has his son's best interest at heart, though he realizes that hearing him say this, Albie will have caught all of my words and none of my intentions. Yes. And I think that this novel is full of the best intentions and some very painful and poignant and very, very funny words and actions. There's there's one point where Connie, just at the end of another sort of challenging exchange, she tells Douglas that he has an incredible capacity for missing the point. Yes. And I think that this is so true, this tug-pull that you feel with your family. So my very first question is, where did these characters come from? And, and how was Douglas, who I feel was so precisely drawn, how, how was he born? Well, um, often characters come uh, in opposition to what you've written before. And in the last book, One Day, I wrote a, a, a male-centric character who was incredibly self-confident, incredibly 
uh, open, um, almost too open and frank, uh, you know, often insensitive, but but rather kind of cocky and, and arrogant and conceited. And I didn't want to write another man like that. Neither did I want to write a guy who was sort of promiscuous or who was struggling with marriage as a kind of prison. I wanted to write a man who loved his wife, uh, loved his wife extremely passionately, but wasn't able to say it. I wanted to write someone who was a little more emotionally withdrawn, a little more sensible uh, and structured in the way they lived their lives, and, and Douglas came out of that. Uh, also, I'd written a lot of uh, characters who were involved in the arts, a lot of actors and writers and students of literature and my other books, and I didn't want to write another arty uh, liberal, so I thought I'd write um, the opposite of what I know about, which is science. I, I know nothing about science. I used to feel uh, much like Douglas about science. When I was 15 or 16, I used to really love science and wanted to be a scientist, and then I got distracted by books and plays and films. But for a long time, I was passionate about science, and I wanted to rediscover some of that passion through the character of Douglas. So that's another element. Uh, Another element was I wanted to write someone older than myself. And I think age, especially as a parent, brings anxiety. You know, you worry about your kid's future and how they're going to make a living in a world that seems ever-changing and uh, ever more difficult, ever more uh, uh, harder to, to get along, simply make a living. Uh, a very different world to the world that Douglas was born into. So I, I wanted to write some of that fear and anxiety of the future into a character, but also to make them sympathetic and to make it clear, as Douglas says, that you know, nearly everything he says or does is motivated by care by care and love and concern. It's just when you see that care and love and concern from a teenage boy's point of view, it can look like the opposite. It can look like bullying. It can look like conservatism. It can look like a a sort of straight-laced, rather neurotic, pessimistic view of the world. Um, But being in Douglas's head allows you to to reveal, as you say, the intentions, the positive intentions, and the, the love that lies behind actions which often seem quite brutal and harsh. That, I think, is why the novel was written from his point of view, because I wanted to to make him a, a strange kind of hero. As you're talking, I'm thinking of the passage where he talks about when he first feels Albie sort of pulling away a little bit from him. Yeah. When Albie's still quite small, he, he has these fantasies, these grand fantasies of rescue. Yes. And to be able to make the grand gesture, to be forced to make the grand gesture, so when the snake bites him and he has to, yeah. you know, suck out the venom, mm. you know, I think that in every parent, there's that love, but it's just his ability to display it and to communicate it yes. is more challenged. I think that love often manifests itself as do your homework, eat your greens, yes. Uh, yes. practice the piano. You know, it's yes. it's that actually, uh, I mean, I'm a parent now. I don't think I could have written this book or written this point of view eight years ago. I think I'd have felt rather differently about what good parenting is. Having access to Douglas's thoughts and feelings uh, does get him off the hook to a degree. He still can be insensitive and callous and thoughtless and a bit of a bully, but but you 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 sense, as you say, this this love that underlies it all. Absolutely. Now you've described it as a love story, as an examination of parenthood and marriage, but also as a road story. And yeah. I think the way that you know the family embarks on this grand tour of European cities despite the strain that they're under. And I think that they're different traveling styles. I think it moves the story along as, as much as anything else. Yes. 
it is very much an Englishman abroad, and that brings with it its own comedy, a, a certain cautiousness and a, uh, a certain anxiety, a desire for everything to be coordinated and uh, for there to be a very tight itinerary. That is all Douglas, not not entirely me. So what? So what kind of traveller are you now? If I travel alone, then I don't really believe in relaxing, and I I really walk. I mean, I walk for vast distances in cities because I really want to see north and south, east and west. I want to see it all, and so I walk for four or five hours without a break and mark my route on a map and you know cross off all the things I feel I ought to see because I love cities I really love cities I always go straight to the the main art gallery and and try and eat in as many restaurants as I can and this makes me a very bad person to go on holiday with because I I hate lying on a beach that to Mm -hmm. me is a kind of hell Mm -hmm. I'd much rather be even in August I'd much rather be in Madrid or Paris even out of season now, I'm, I'm curious because you move back and forth between writing books and writing for film and TV. Mm-hmm. When you're writing books, are you conscious of the, of the three-act structure that's, that's often used in, in film writing? I'm not, but I, I think it probably does seep in onto the page. I mean, I think all of the books probably do have a kind of three-act structure, and they are probably all quite, you know, in inverted commas, well-made. I'm aware that sometimes that makes them maybe feel a bit slick. I mean, this book is a series of short chapters, about 180 short chapters, and you could look at them as as beats in a screenplay. But at the same time, I do want them to work primarily as books. You know, I want them to be good prose. And whilst there are certain elements that cross over, like a dialogue and scene structure and a three-act structure and little narrative hooks at the end of each chapter and that kind of thing, those those things which are a legacy of a screenwriting training, I do want the prose to be specific uh, to the form. And so I don't think of them as screenplays in disguise. I think of them as absolutely novels, first and foremost. Uh, and the great thing about writing a novel is is that you have all these extra tools you know, no one's going to ask you about the budget. So you can go anywhere you want and you can have it rain or snow or you can have a tidal wave, it's fine. Uh, no one is particularly worried in the same way about length. You don't have to cram it into exactly 200 pages. I think there's less of a concern with the genre uh, in fiction. You know, the, the, often when you hear about a film, the first question is, what is it? Yeah. Is it an action thriller? Is it a romantic it comedy? Else, is, it, yeah. is it this film meets this film? Yeah. And fiction doesn't have that uh, those limitations in the same way. Of course, genre exists, and genre isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I don't I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about how the story is. You know, what what box does it fit into? And most especially, you have access to a character's inner thoughts in a way that you don't in a film. In a film, that's that's pretty much the terrain of the director and the the actor. Um, the only real way, the only real equivalent is voiceover, and voiceover in film is... It's a sign of trouble, usually. It's a sign of trouble, yes. So that's the big thrill for a screenwriter when they write their first novel, is you're allowed to say he thinks he feels. You're allowed to say what's happening on the character's face. All of the things that in a screenplay would be crossed out by the actor. Now, you mentioned the way you treat um, chapters in this book, which uh, I love so much. So there are exactly 180 chapters. They each have their 
distinct names, some yes. of which are so funny, so, yes. so humorous. And one of the things that I did, I, I, I didn't really notice it at the, at the beginning as I was so drawn in and I was reading, reading, and I, I caught on to it. And I, then I started to notice it. And then as soon as I finished the book, I went back and I looked at them again. Yeah. And I sort of got them on a whole different level. So, yes. so what prompted you to structure it that way and how difficult was it to lay on the chapter titles? The chapter title, I, I, I'm pleased you said that. No one has, has mentioned that. I like the chapter titles too. But the, what's strange about the chapter titles is they're not Douglas's chapter titles. They're yes. mine. Oh, that's, that's, that's true, right. And yeah, it's the same with the epigraphs. There, there are quite a lot of epigraphs in the book. And again, you know, Douglas doesn't read novels. And, uh, and there are references in the book to, to Henry James and Thomas Hardy. <laughs> and that's probably and my anxiety. He just wants to read his war <laughs> histories and, and just he be likes sort of his, left yes, alone there. He likes books about the Second World War. He certainly doesn't want to read Henry James. So I suppose it's a slightly stylized thing. It's a, it's a bit of a narrator. It's, it's me narrating the uh, book a little yes. and putting in these little ironic asides. But they're not, they're, they're not Douglas's voice. You're absolutely right. They're, they're little jokes often. Um, so I think it's a way of me as a narrator um, getting to make little jokes along the way. And did you layer them in while you were going or afterwards? Or? Uh, they were, we talked earlier about screenwriting and in, in screenwriting often screenwriters talk about beats and, yes. and, and with every single scene in the screenplay someone will ask you what's it for? And the headings, the chapter headings were I suppose little kind of aid memoir for me, you know, this is the one about this and you know, this. they all have a little purpose, they all have a little theme and um, they all uh, these 180 little vignettes add up to a yes. a bigger story. I think also I wanted the short chapters to reflect the experience of travel, which is often episodic and disjointed. You know, it's the train trip, the hotel, the meal, the museum, mm-hmm. the, 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 the little um, chunks of time. Mm-hmm. And also the shorter chapters allowed me to quite nimbly knit backwards and forwards in time frames. That's right. Um, because one day, which had a similarly tight structure with 21 chapters only, each chapter representing one day. And I I love these frameworks. I find writing within a framework like that fun and easier. It gives me a a sort of scaffolding in which to place the the dialogue and the events. Well, I I don't want to give away the ending by any means. Okay. But I did so very much love the title of the last chapter. (laughs) My second favorite was I, I think it was soft mints for the chapter <laughs> where it was a very dramatic turning point, and yet the, the chapter title was soft, soft mints. mints. Yes. yes. So well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Now I'm going to ask you a few um, writer as reader okay. questions. All right. Okay. So what was the last book you spoke about with a friend, and what did you what did you say? Oh goodness, I think it was uh, the last book I read, which was uh, Lila by Marilyn Robinson which I thought was a very fine book and a very sort of austere and quite quite difficult book. Read, I mean, beautifully written is a, such a generic criticism, isn't it? I don't know what beautifully written means, yeah. really. I said, what does it mean? Poetically written or precisely written? It's a very kind of catch-all term, but it was beautifully written. I mean, a very almost a kind of Old Testament uh, prose style. And we talk, I think we talked about uh, it being uh, interesting to read a book written from an explicitly Christian point of view, that actually mm-hmm. that's not something you find much in, in fiction, where religion, uh, perhaps this is a generalization, but religion doesn't play a major part in, 
in modern fiction. Now, I'm not particularly religious, but I enjoyed reading a book that was so steeped in religion, both in its style and its subject matter and themes. Mm-hmm. And if you were to recommend a book to a 13-year-old boy, so your toughest oh, customer, okay. your toughest customer out there. Well, the ones that really caught me uh, at that age were 1984, uh, because um, I think Orwell is a very accessible writer. He writes about politics uh, brilliantly, but that book is also a great thriller. It's a great spy thriller, and uh, it's really gripping, and it has a lot of rather difficult ideas in it, but it's, it's, uh, it's violent, and it's pacey, and it's powerful and dramatic, and Orwell, in general, Orwell was the first great writer that I loved. I loved his essays as well. You know, as a 13-year-old, I found that kind of engagement with political ideas really inspiring, uh, but always accessible. And for similar reasons, I love Dickens, and I would probably uh, pass on Great Expectations, Great Expectations, yeah. Yeah, because again, you know, when I read that book, I must have been 13 and 14, and I thought he was writing about me. I thought, you know, all all the kind of foolish aspirations and the ridiculous, (laughs) unrequited love and, you know, the kind of um, the self deceit and the the, 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 the shallowness and you know, I, I, I found it um, absolutely spot on and I still think it's the best coming of age book I still think uh, particularly for for boys I think I think perhaps I don't want to generalize but I think a lot of female readers have the same experience with either Jane Eyre or Pride and Prejudice or Wuthering Heights and I think for a lot of for a lot of male authors I know it's great expectations mm-hmm all right, and lastly, and you can have more than one, but okay. you're now forced on a desert island. Okay. Again, I could go on and on and on, but I would definitely pick uh, a big Dickens. Uh, Dickens tends to come in two sizes. Uh, the the 500-page novels. Big like, and bigger, yeah. Big and bigger. There's Great Expectations and Oliver Twist, the little mini ones, but I would go for something like Bleak House or Our Mutual Friend, one of the great late thousand pages because there's so much in there and... I think I'd probably plump for Bleak House. I think that's a masterpiece. A great, great, great book. And then I'd try and smuggle in a few others. Uh, Tenderest and Night by Scott Fitzgerald, which I love. Uh, Franny and Zooey by J.D. Salinger, which, which always makes me cry. It's a really beautiful, beautiful book, I think. And I'd probably grab one collection of short stories, maybe the short stories of John Cheever, the complete short stories of John Cheever, because I think he's a a wonderful writer. And there are some incredible stories in there. Yeah, we recorded many of those. Oh, really? We have Meryl Streep reading The Enormous Radio. Oh, wow. It was back in our old building <laughs> where you could stand on the uh, the other side of the glass and she gets to that point where he's yelling at her and you, you, you I started crying. I mean, she was so, she read it so beautifully. Well, that's a great story. That's a great yeah, story. There's so many wonderful st- stories in there and it was actually, you know, quite an influence on on this novel, on us, just because so many of them are about men, you know, apparently normal suburban men who are full of this longing and passion and desire and frustration and anger. And and I love this idea of a normal man who who has this stuff bubbling away and he doesn't quite know how to express it. And that was a big part of the inspiration for us. All right, I'm going to ask you to read a passage. I'm going to set it up by saying... Another thing that I so loved about this novel was, like you said, it, he, he, here is Douglas, you know, not an artsy-fartsy guy, but really trying, because of his love for Connie, 
to understand and to go there and to yes. appreciate because Connie is, is an artist and, and, and is very, very in touch with all of that. So what I've asked you to read is a very short uh, one of the chapters where yeah. it is his perspective of art history before being influenced by Connie. Yes, this is everything that Douglas knows. A brief history of art. Cave paintings. Clay, then bronze statues. Then, for about 1,400 years, people painted nothing except bold but rudimentary pictures of either the Virgin Mary and child or the crucifixion. Some bright spark realized that things in the distance looked smaller, and the pictures of the Virgin Mary and the crucifixion improved hugely. Suddenly, everyone was very good at hands and facial expression, and now the statues were in marble. Fat cherubs started appearing, while elsewhere there was a craze for domestic interiors and women standing by windows doing needlework, uh, dead pheasants and bunches of grapes and lots of detail. Cherubs disappeared, and instead there were fanciful, idealised landscapes, then portraits of aristocrats on horseback, then huge canvases of battles and shipwrecks, then it was back to women lying on sofas or getting out of the bath, murkier this time, less detailed, then a great many wine bottles and apples. Then ballet dancers. Paintings developed a certain uh, splodginess, critical term, so that they barely resembled what they were meant to be. Someone signed a urinal and it all went mad. Neat squares of primary colour were followed by great blocks of emulsion, then soup cans, then someone picked up a video camera, someone else poured concrete, and the whole thing became hopelessly fractured into a kind of confusing, anything goes free for all. That's so it. Marvelous. <laughs> Thank you so very much. A pleasure. Thank you for listening. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or a comment via our Facebook page, Harper Audio Presents. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents. <laughs>